thank you for joining for the fourth of our five special episodes discussing emerging insights at the midway point of the Resilient Leadership Project. In a few seconds, you'll hear Peter Willis and me, Seth Schultz, discuss some insights that relate to the theme we're calling the turbulence of the breaking wave, based on weekly reflections from our participants on supporting their organization's responses as the COVID-19 crisis has deepened or widened. Welcome back, Peter, to our uh, midterm installment and little mini series here podcast as we're pulling out the learnings from the first half of this project. So far, it's been <laughs> as interesting as I thought it might be. And I can't wait to hear what you, you have on tap for us today to discuss. Hi, Seth. And I want to share with you some of the insights that emerged out of the sort of latter part of this first eight weeks, where typically, you know, all the First order adrenaline has left the body because people are just exhausted. And the thrill of getting organized successfully into working from home and making sure your people are safe and all that, that's gone. Guess what? The problems have just multiplied. So the impression I've had is that this is that part of warfare. I don't, could even be on an expedition where there are no mountain peaks to look from to survey the landscape. You are now hacking through the jungle. And it is hot and tedious, and you can't see very far ahead of you. You don't know what's coming, and it's a bit like that. No, I love that analogy, kind of hacking through the undergrowth. You've got to move on, but you don't know exactly what you're stepping into next. It also reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> it's, I don't know if you've ever heard this one, but Mike Tyson famously said, you know, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And it strikes me that, you know, the first part of what we've been talking about in terms of you see the wave crashing you're trying to restructure your organization. You're trying to figure out how to immediately solve problems for yourself, for your family, for your staff, for your citizens. And then you get punched in the face and you get knocked down. How do you figure this out? And not only pick yourself back up, but to your point, how do you start hacking through this undergrowth and make sense out of chaos? You can't stop. There's no, no one will allow you to. You can't just take a break um, and say, can we just sort of pause for a week? I need a holiday. Tom Lewis, who's job is to organize logistical support for federal government and state governments in emergencies. And this is hurricane season all of a sudden. And I actually think it's quite remarkable how for the first two months or three months of this global crisis, there was not much else to disturb the, the dominance of the pandemic on everybody's screen. We really were able to focus as a world on one thing, one big crisis. And that's quite remarkable in a way. But then as we've gone further on, and just as the troops are tiring down there in the jungle, here comes some fresh disasters. And on top of the hurricane season, and you will know this only too well, of course, there is the um, social unrest. And that's in the States because of the George Floyd killing and the extraordinary backlash um, and the upheaval as a result of that. But also I think of um, Brazil, where Andrea is talking to me from Salvador. Salvador seems to be a, a very well-run city in a, in a well-run state. They are within a very, very riskily run national situation. I suppose the simple, is this a learning? I don't know, that crises don't behave in an orderly way. Maybe that's just too trivial to even dwell on. But if we stay with this theme of what do you do when it becomes just too complex and uncertain to have reliable plans and strategies and, and so on. I think of Craig Kesson in Cape Town, the city of Cape Town, and he told me how 
he and his team had done a phenomenal job of putting together a really flexible plan for the city to adapt to whatever this pandemic might throw, because they couldn't tell in the early days whether Cape Town was going to be badly hit or not so bad and where it was going to be, et cetera. So he came up with a really good way of structuring the city's budget and its organizational relationships and so on. But then at a certain point, he said to me, you know, we can plan and plan, but we have a strong indication from the epidemiological models that the peak is coming fairly fast towards us. And my, what I'm telling my people now is we must just stop trying to sort of hold everybody back in their homes and lock down and, and concentrate on, on locking down. And we must actually allow the economy to loosen up people, particularly the poor, to, to leave their homes in search of income. And we must just cope with the uncertainty and quite possible sort of epidemic chaos that will arise from that. And for someone whose professional work is to structure a hugely complex city and its management, to get to that point where he's saying, let's just allow this thing to, to happen. He's not by any means throwing up his hands. No, no. But it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having on our last discussion of it's just another form of letting go. What do you have to let go of? And in this case, it's it's certainty. There isn't a lot of certainty. I think that's if there's anything that's been pretty clear in the last two, three months, just as the moment you think you've figured it out or solved the problem, it shifts under your under your foot again. Um, so I, yeah, I, I totally take the point that you're making about one, there's other things that are going to be happening that are going to need our attention that is going to be difficult to do and require new in innovation and intervention from how we ha normally handle it, like our uh, upcoming hurricane season along the East Coast, um, which is going to be totally different and difficult to do with COVID and social distancing and kind of disruption in supply chains, even on to the point you're making about Cape Town, or I'd imagine holds true for the other cities as well. Planning, 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 you've got to start reopening. And what are the reopening plans are? They're very structured. There's phase one, there's phase two. It's all nice and orderly. I promise you that's going to go out the window. Plan only works until you try to implement it, and then you've got to adjust. So I, I can imagine the difficulty associated with that. But again, at a certain point, you just got to move forward. You've got to move on. Yes. And how about how is this playing out in the corporate side? You reminded me of um, Peter Chamley, uh, chairman of Arab Australasia. He, uh, he's, my, my impression is that he's a man who's very at home with sort of getting his team of executives to plan how they're going to open up new markets and stuff. And, and he's, he's, a, he's clearly a very brilliant engineer and project manager on a large scale. But he said to me with some sort of real puzzlement, he said, you know, it is impossible to plan. We tried it. We tried sort of planning how are we going to earn our next slices of revenue in the, in the coming months in our various geographies here. But we realized that with one or two exceptions where we, where we know we've got strong relations with a government department that wants to spend money on infrastructure, for the rest, it's impossible to plan. And that's quite difficult because you've got a lot of salaries to pay. So yeah, I, I, when I left that conversation, he, you know, there wasn't an answer to this. There wasn't suddenly, oh, well, if we can't plan, we can do this. Uh, I don't know what that this is. But my guess is that you, you have to do, in a way, kind of micro plans or plans where you, you plan as firmly as you can with the data you've got. But you are absolutely cool with letting that plan go and rebuilding it a week later. Yeah, not, not being too precious. Yeah. 
at a certain point, you have to start allocating resources. But I think um, there must be tens of thousands of executives around the world who have been learning harsh lessons about how planning is a luxury. Yeah, there's multiple levels of kind of dealing with this uncertainty because at one hand, it's going to, we're talking about senior leaders and planning top-down type organizations and, and needing to be nimble and move from one to one. But then you've also got to be bringing along the trust of your respective organizations because when plans change, what the reality of that is that you're asking people to then also adapt to that and to change what they're doing very rapidly, which can seem unsettling, which can seem chaotic, which can also provide a perception that there is a lack of leadership and a lack of a plan, which is very destabilizing to organizations. So again, you see this incongruous type of conflicts. You know, we need to be really quick and the quicker we are and the faster we move, the healthier and more resilient we're going to be. But if we do that with too much rapidity, we're going to leave people behind and see this chaos. Yes, that's a very, that's a very good point. Has there been any, any examples that you have um, kind of on the negative side of this where there's been a decision by one of um, the organizations we've been talking to where they felt compelled to make a change? It might have been the wrong move and they needed to react and pivot really quickly. Has that emerged yet? No, I'm scanning in my mind. No. And I think what I'm picking up from particularly, you see, some of, some of my interviewees are people who manage large groups of people and they're, they're, they're working in large organizations, either a city or a corporation and others are working more in roles of influence um, where they may have, may have a small team, but they're not the person to whom everybody looks up for direction every morning, as it were. So those who've got large groups uh, working and reporting into them, they have all talked to me about how they have had to really think about and focus on their communication cadence and the way they the intent they put behind their communications and i'm i'm really impressed actually with how they've all kind of answered that question for themselves and they the the common theme coming through is you communicate frequently honestly calmly like you don't go and sort of build any amount of um, excitement or sort of getting in close to stoking anxiety that you might yourself be feeling, but that's not your, your job when you're communicating with your people, but give them the best information you've got. And yes, to your point, warn them that this is what we know now. When things change, which they will do, we will update you some more. That's apparently what most of them have been saying, and it's gone down very well. Yeah, I'd be interested if you can, you know, when you get back to your weekly interviews with our participants, if you could push them a little bit on on sharing some failures for the insights of all of us in terms of where they've had to hack their way through the jungle, not at any fault of their own, but then needed to implement and how quickly did they realize it was a mistake and how do you pivot? It'd be interesting to kind of push that out. I'm worried, you know, more broadly that you know, some of the, the most profound learning we can have is from our mistakes. And in, in many cases, I would argue that we don't really truly learn until we've made a mistake. There's no such thing as perfect. There's no such thing as everybody having it right all the time. And the, the biggest steps forward is when you've made a mistake and realized it. But at the same time, going back to our conversation about politicizing all of this, nobody wants to talk about their failures. And I think it's a massive missed learning opportunity and or when we talk about failures, right, we just do the finger pointing. Well, it was their fault. It wasn't our fault. We would have had it right if they hadn't messed it up. And similarly, I'd, and I don't know if this has come out of your, your conversations, Peter, but this idea of 
kind of riffing off what you were just talking about. So you've got a plan and your plan might be fine. But what strikes me is that there was some uniformity for a moment with the chaos. So everything was shut down. Now as they're starting to reopen, things aren't reopening equally. People are going to have to go back to work, but kids are still at home and they're not in school. So now there's not enough health care. And the healthcare community and indoor childcare isn't opened up. They've only opened up and or allowed to open up for emergency workers, which might be medical, healthcare, fire, police, what have you. So what, what's happening when your plans are now meeting a new reality and it's meet, butting up against other types of organizations? So it might be the food industry. It might be the building that your office is in. Well, they might have a totally different plan than yours. And, and then what happens? I know it's kind of early in this kind of reopening. This come up at all? Oh, spot on. This has been a, a real concern for the, particularly the corporate interviewees. They've come to realize that the ethos of care for their people, for their staff, particularly suppliers and contractors also, but their real focus has been on their employees. That requires them to say, okay, we want to reopen business, obviously, because that's our source of revenue to the degree that we can. But you need to be happy with this. And they realize that this is a, you know, the sovereign individual is at the, at the center of this process, that each individual is going to be making up his or her mind as to whether I feel safe to get on public transport and go to my place of work and do all those little micro interactions that are needed in, on a day when you travel to and from work. And then what am I coming home to in terms of vulnerable people, et cetera? And, and you as a, as a CEO or a, an executive, you don't have any real insight into the micro detail of that. So you have to trust that your people are going to make those decisions. And meanwhile, you've got to retain this focus on, yeah, okay, fine. You can all make your choices, but we are going to need to start reopening the business in this way and in this way and in this place and in that place. One of them actually said to me yesterday, we thought lockdown was really difficult. Boy, was lockdown easy compared with reopening. This is an absolute minefield. And I, I think they I love your question about um, failures and mistakes. I've long been a fan of focusing on failure from time to time because of what it teaches us. So I will ask, and I suspect reopening is going to be an area where mistakes are going to be made. Lots of material there, unfortunately, probably. Again, kind of to put a, a bow on this discussion, if that can be said, I guess there's a certain, across everything we've discussed, a certain level of accepting uncertainty and leaning into the unknown with some trust and some bravery and some collaboration and equal doses that's required moving forward. Yeah, would you say that's, that's fair? Yeah, I think that if there was one quality that I would wish with my sort of theory godmother wand to bestow on every person who takes on a, a role of leadership of any group or organization. It would be that they can become comfortable within themselves with uncertainty and complexity, because that is our reality. And I think it was always like that, but it's, it's, it's more extreme now. And unfortunately, a lot of the training we've grown up with, uh, education and so on, imagines that there are knowns that need to be known. And I think you and I have worked in a world where all we see is uncertainty. As a leadership quality, for me, that would be right up there. 
I agree. And, and I think I guess a couple of other things to add to that list, I think, from my perspective, and particularly because of the level of, of unrest for lots of underlying conditions that's happening, you know, here in the US where I'm based is, I think, in terms of leadership more broadly for everybody, I think a level of gentleness and forgiveness in equal doses is also is also required. And there's a lot of stress and a lot of change and a lot of people and that uncertainty causes fear and sensitivity. But we got to remember, we're all in this together. And we, we might not understand why something was done. But I think if we can remember that people are doing their best in very uncertain times, give everybody a little extra latitude, and to be more quick to forgive than to try to hold accountable, I think we would all benefit right now. Totally, totally endorse what you're saying, Seth. I love that. I mean, that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. You point to a better world. That's what we need, Peter. Thanks again, and uh, look forward to our next discussion. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Peter and I as we discussed some of the emerging insights from the Resilient Leadership Project thus far. If you want to hear more insights and reflections from our midterm review, please listen to the other four episodes that are part of our special five-part series. You can find these episodes and a lot more around emerging insights on our website. Link in the episode notes below. On behalf of the Resilient Shift, this is Seth Schultz. See you soon. Thank you.